Listener note, the following podcast contains descriptions of murder that some listeners may find upsetting. Some scenes have been dramatised. It's the biggest murder inquiry Grampian Police has ever undertaken. Who uses a cheese wire like that? He could have easily you know, been beheaded. It was just complete disbelief that, that something like that had been used on Dodd. This person would be very much feared that those who know him would not speak because of fear of recriminations. To stay quiet for 40 years is having known you've killed somebody. You know, that takes a certain type of person to do that. You know, a psychopath potentially. You know, it's he's certainly no conscience, that's for sure. I think it will be solved within the next two years. I haven't wavered. I mean, if I thought this was futile, we would have probably given up. And we absolutely don't think it is. At approximately 4pm on Thursday the 29th of September 1983, George Murdoch left his Aberdeen home. It was a rainy, windy day and the incoming mist from the North Sea covered Aberdeen under a blanket of dense fog. He ran from his front door to his blue Ford Cortina taxi, with his hands hovering above his head, trying his best to shield himself from the rain. He turned the key to his taxi, as the engine spluttered into a steady rumble. He flicked the lever to start the windscreen wipers and looked out of the window in front of him as they monotonously swept from left to right. He leaned over into the glove compartment, grabbed a cloth and wiped away the condensation from the windscreen. The rain was getting heavier and the wipers were already struggling to clear away the constant stream of rain. George could see his wife Jessie standing at the window, ready to wave him off. It was miserable days like this that George dreaded the 10-hour taxi shift that loomed ominously in front of him. He'd much rather stay at home, read the paper whilst listening to Jessie sing as she happily baked in their kitchen. He shook this thought from his head. Being a taxi driver was how he paid the bills to provide for him and his wife. Besides, it was rainy days like this, working for city taxis, that usually brought him more customers, trying to avoid the bad weather as they made their way about their day. He turned his upper body to fasten his seatbelt. He released the handbrake, and as he drove away from their modest home, he waved goodbye to his wife Jessie. From his rearview mirror, he could see Jessie waving as he drove along their street. As George turned the corner, Jessie disappeared from his sight. And that was to be the last time George and Jesse would ever see one another. For that night, the person George picked up in his taxi at approximately 8.35pm would also be his murderer. Because of the unusual weapon, a cheese wire, found at the gruesome murder scene, the media over the coming days, weeks, months, years and even decades would label George's assailant as the cheese wire killer. 40 years later, the murder of George Murdoch remains unsolved. However, both the police and the family of George Murdoch remain hopeful of one day finally bringing his killer to justice. 
The past four decades have brought several positive leads and the police investigation remains open. Across the next five episodes, on the 40th anniversary of George Murdoch's murder, amongst others, I'll interview the people investigating this case, George's family, as well as experts across forensics and criminal psychology, as I ask, who is the cheesewire killer? Cheesewire Killer, Episode 1, The Last Fair. My name is Ryan Ogilvie. I'm an audio creative writer, which basically means that I write radio commercials for a living. Over the years, I've written for every type of client. On the 20th of March 2023, I received a brief like nothing I'd ever worked on before. This radio commercial wasn't looking for customers to buy a product. This commercial was looking for information that would successfully lead to the identity of a murderer. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the unsolved murder of George Murdoch. After being strangled, this local taxi driver was left dying on Pitfoddle Station Road on the 29th of September, 1983. If you know who did this, or strongly suspect who may have done so, please let us know. Private message us through the George Murdoch Appeals Facebook page or email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or contact the police on 101. Up until the time I wrote that radio commercial, I knew very little about George Murdoch's murder. I did know that a taxi driver had been murdered some time ago in Aberdeen that a cheesewire was somehow involved in the murder and that the person who committed this crime had never been caught. The person who commissioned the radio commercial was Robina Mackay. Her husband, Alex, is the nephew of the victim, George Murdoch. In 2015, Alex and Robina launched a campaign to help solve his murder. Uh, we are very, very, very hopeful. I, I think it will be solved in the, within the next two years. Um, we haven't wavered. I mean, if I thought this was, was uh, futile, we would have probably given up. And um, we absolutely don't think it is. Whether the killer is alive or dead, there's absolutely still people there who, who can help. But we need to have that definitive person who either knew the killer or who knew that their mother, father, grandmother, grandfather knew him, you know, without doubt. And that's the people who need to come forward. Since they started the campaign, Alex and Rubina have started a Facebook appeal page, published a book about the murder, raised a £50,000 reward 
and have been interviewed by countless media outlets. When I was putting the radio commercial together, I spoke to Rubina Mackay over the phone and she gave me an overview of the case. That night, I did a Google search for George Murdoch, Murder, 1983. I found dozens of old newspaper articles about the case and before I knew it, I found myself deep down a rabbit hole that I just couldn't climb out of. There were several things that first stood out to me about this murder. The sheer brutality of how George was killed and the fact that the killer used a cheese wire were both truly shocking. For George to be attacked in this way, a person who was described as gentle, kind, fun and loving, he must have been terrified beyond belief. And then, of course, his wife Jessie made a widow at only 56. To lose your husband is crushing enough, but to lose him in such a brutal and sadistic way, I just couldn't help wondering how anyone could ever get over that. And the simple answer is, she would never get over it. Jesse would continue living, but not in the true sense of the word. Her life must have become very, very dark after the night George was taken away from her. And, of course, the fact that the killer had simply vanished. He had been allowed to carry on living his life without ever being punished for this despicable crime. Somebody out there must know something, I thought. And this was a story that deserved to be told. I sought the permission of George's family to produce a podcast about the murder. And the fact that you're listening to me right now obviously means that they said yes. Not only did they agree to me producing this podcast, they also agreed to be interviewed. Over the coming weeks, Robina and I would exchange almost a hundred emails discussing the podcast and George's murder. But we'd never actually met face to face. That was until Tuesday 25th April 2023, just over five months away from the 40th anniversary of the murder of George Murdoch, one of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. Morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? Hey, I'm Ryan. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? I'm grand yourself. I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Well, welcome. What a lovely spot. Oh, we love it here. Alex Very and Rubina Mackay are both in their 60s. Alex has short, receding grey hair and a moustache. He's friendly, with a twinkle in his eye. Rubina is petite, with short blonde hair, which she wears in a wavy style. They couldn't be more welcoming when I arrive at their home. We chat for some time as we get to know one another, and I answer some of their questions about me and about the podcast. And then the topic of conversation turns to George and Jesse. It's also worth pointing out that George was also called Dodd by his close friends and by his family. Our side of the family called him Dodd. And uh, they lived about six, eight hundred metres away from where we lived. So we, we saw a lot of them um, growing up. Um, I certainly saw a lot of them. I went on holiday with them and uh, we did some bits and pieces with them in the boat. So I was able to form a, a really good 
uh, opinion of him, I think. He was just such a really nice man, just a down-to-earth man. And it, I, I say this with great affection, just a working-class man, um, just somebody that you could rely on, um, always had a smile on his face, and that's just how I remember him. My Aunt Jessie was something special. They didn't have any kids, so uh, they doted a lot on their uh, nieces and nephews. She was kind of an unconscious comedian. Um, even after Dodd died, um, she kept a lot of things to herself. Um, but she was always laughing and joking. And one of the, one of the things that I, I remember, <laughs> uh, I don't remember, I wasn't there, but my mum tells me this story and it just makes me laugh. Um, she was at, uh, with her two sisters, my mum and her other sister, Cathy. They were at uh, the market. And uh, anyway, they're going around the stalls and uh, afterwards they're coming back. And this man comes, Madam, Madam, come back here. And so they're, all, they're looking at one another. Who was he speaking to? It was, of course, it was my Aunt Jessie. She had inadvertently got... Uh, a blouse with one of the hangers hooked to the back of her blouse and she's, so of course the three of them were in fits of laughter and that's just what I remember think about Jessie is because that's, she just liked a good laugh and uh, she was hard working as well but uh, yeah a lot of good memories with Aunt Jessie. Many of George and Jessie's relatives and friends have sadly passed away over the years. And with their passings, memories of the couple have also disappeared. So it's near impossible to find any information about their younger lives, their childhoods, how they met, and what they were like as a young couple. But what I do know is that George Brodie Murdoch was born on the 14th of February 1926. With two brothers and a sister, he was one of four children. His father, also George Murdoch, was a fisherman and his mum, Marjorie, a stay-at-home mum. Jessie, a couple of years younger than her husband, was born on the 1st of December 1928 to William Ralph, a painter and decorator, and his wife Jessie, also a stay-at-home mum. She was one of six children, with two brothers and three sisters. George and Jessie married on the 22nd March 1946 at St Marcus Cathedral in Aberdeen. George, 20 years old, and Jessie, just 18. George was thin, with dark cropped hair and a wide smile. He enjoyed the company of others, but shied away from being the centre of attention. Jessie had a slight build, brown curly hair, and wore spectacles. She had a soft heart. She was a nervous woman, a born warrior, but always with a smile on her face. George's nephew, Alex, describes the couple as normal, kind, loving, full of fun, who would have helped anyone. They didn't have kids of their own, but they loved the company of children and were very close to their nephews and nieces. They were also a social couple and quite often would enjoy a night out at their local pub with their close circle of friends. Everybody in those days, and I think it's something that's died off now, but uh, everybody had a, a song. It was maybe the only song he knew. Um, but he was always sitting in the background. So he wasn't the one that was right up front, the life and soul of the party. He just had his rum. He was sitting at the back and of course they went around. Everybody had a song to sing. And he would sing, uh, I don't know the name of it. It's, uh, but it was, gimme, gimme, gimme what I cried for. You know you got the kind of kisses that I died for. You made me love you. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. 
recognise George's favourite song, you would have heard it at the start of this episode. We had a version of this record commissioned and produced as the title track for this podcast. It was a Broadway song from 1913 and, over the years, it's been covered by several A-list artists. Many musicians have referred to this song as one of the best love songs ever written. Jesse was hard-working and had several jobs, including working as a shop assistant in both a baker's and a fruit and veg shop, as well as working in a hotel laundry. George also had a number of jobs over the years, including working for an oil tool business, and then latterly, when he was made redundant from his job working in a mill factory, he became a taxi driver for City Taxis in Aberdeen, a job that desperately worried his wife Jessie. She didn't like it one bit. She was scared. She was really scared on the night shift. And she said to him, Dodd, I'm really worried about you doing this job. And he says, oh, Jess, look, he says, don't worry. He says, if anybody wants my money, he says, I'll give it to them. My Uncle Dodd wasn't a fighter. He just was not a fighter. She was kind of a nervous woman anyway, but irrespective, I don't think that would have made any difference Um not everybody out there is good or have good intentions. Um, there's, it only takes one. Is, is Dodd going to come across that, that person? Um, so she, she, she never, ever was happy with that. George generally liked being a taxi driver. He enjoyed meeting people and according to his brother James, now deceased, he would go out of his way to help his customers. However, as we now know, Jesse's worries about his job sadly were completely justified. Thursday 29th of September 1983 is a night that Alex and Rabina Mackay will never forget. They had just returned from holiday. They were both tired after travelling so they went to bed earlier than usual that night. I think the phone rang about 10.30. I wasn't sleeping but was kind of half asleep and uh, of course when the phone rings at that time in your house it's never good news. It always stands out in my mind, almost like exactly as it, as it happens. It was just such a traumatic night. And as soon as I heard Alex's mum's voice, I thought, oh no, this is something, something's happened to his father. My mum must have said to her, can I speak to, to Alexander? She says, Dodd's dead. I says, oh my goodness, what's happened? He says, well, we don't know too much, but uh, he's been murdered. It, it, it was just like... It was just like you were living a nightmare. You never think it's going to happen to, to a member of your family. She said, your dad's going down to identify the body along with uh, Dodd's brother. I couldn't quite comprehend it, kind of saying it over and over in my head when, when Alec was on the phone. I'm thinking, I, I, I just don't believe this. I, I just felt absolutely terrible, just disbelief. 
That was the start of that night. It was the start of the next 40 odd years, to be honest. In the coming days, weeks and months, the family gained more and more information from the police. As this is an unsolved murder, there are obviously holes in the timeline of events that led to George's murder that night. But here's what we do know. At approximately 4pm on Thursday the 29th of September 1983, George Murdoch left his Aberdeen home to start his shift as a taxi driver. That's me off, darling. OK. And remember... I know. Be careful. <laughs> I will. Don't worry, Jess. And Dodd, don't forget to pick up my wallpaper. Will do, darling. As if I'd forget. Detective Inspector James Callender has been a police officer for 22 years. For the past two years, he's headed up the major investigation team for Police Scotland, when he also became the senior investigating officer for the George Murdoch murder inquiry. During the, the course of the night, he's heading back into, into the city centre direction and picks up a fare on Queen's Road uh, in Aberdeen around uh, about half past eight-ish and takes the, the fare, radios into the control room to let him know he's picked up a fare and he's heading out to the, the cult's direction. Uh, and he, that's where he obviously heads and ends up in Forrell Station Road and that's where he was attacked. So, what we do know is that George picked up two German students at the University of Aberdeen and dropped them off on Queen's Road in the west end of Aberdeen. He was heading back into the city centre when he was flagged down by a man at the side of the road near the new Markleff Hotel. Hello. Where are you off to then? Cooter. Where about in Cooter, son? I'll give you directions when we get there, OK? Not a problem. How's your night been? It's been all right. Then, as he always did, George radioed his taxi office to tell them that he had picked up a passenger. Hello, taxi 333 here. Oh, hey, taxi 333. I've just picked up a passenger on Queen's Road going to Kuta. Thanks, George. Got that. Let me know when you've cleared, please. Will do. After that, it's not entirely clear what happened. For some unexplained reason, George drove into a side street. Pitfoddle Station Road. It was a dark, quiet road, at the time described as dimly lit, and it was a detour from the destination that he told the cab office he was driving to. Here's Detective Inspector James Callender. It's obviously widely known in the, the media there was a, a cheese wire used, uh, and he was ultimately you know, robbed of his, his belongings, uh, his wallet, was never found, taken from the taxi were taken uh, and he was uh, died of strangulation basically in the, the, the out, out with the taxi itself. You know, was the intent murder or was the intent robbery? It's potentially a robbery went wrong. There's nothing in George's history or background that suggests that anybody wanted to kill him. So it does look like, you know, he was maybe just trying to rob him. Uh, George has obviously managed to to remove the cheeseware from around his neck and uh, that's obviously been discarded and he's obviously been strangled thereafter uh, outside of the taxi but 
yeah, I don't know what the, the motive was and, you know, we might never know. I mean, we know what happened from, from the, the police report, etc., uh, in terms of how how he met his end. Uh, speculation as to how how he got there, who's in the cab with him, obviously. Um, but um, there have been something, some altercation with, with the person and they used a cheese wire on him. Uh, they hadn't been successful. Um, and then they got outside the car and poor Uncle Dodd, in some way, shape or form, was uh, his head been bashed against the wall and then he was then he was manually strangled. And that takes that takes a long time to do, about two two minutes for somebody to be strangled. And in my mind, I just think, goodness me, I mean, that, such anger. Um, you think somebody might say, I've taken this really a bit too far, I need to stop it, but no. That man took it to the to the ultimate ultimate. As the attack was taking place, a couple of teenagers just happened to cycle by. So they, they were basically cycling up Pitfordle Station Road uh, and they've obviously seen the attack taking place. They've heard George shout uh, basically for help and they've basically went to get help. They've cycled along the, the short distance, I just think it was just under a mile, to the nearest telephone box uh, and phoned the police. You know, I know as a, you know, young teenage boy, it's going to have been quite difficult for them. Uh, but yeah, they, they didn't know what they were witnessing. They thought they were witnessing a, an assault and it's obviously turned out to be one of the most uh, infamous unsolved murders in Aberdeen. So it's, it's going to have an impact on them. That's for sure. Come on, slow coach. I bet you can't catch up with me. No way. This hill is way too steep and you had a head start. There's a phone box just along the road. Cycle. Faster, faster. Hurry, hurry. They were young boys, just children, both 15 years old. Witnessing this barbaric attack must have been incredibly traumatic for them both. They didn't think this attack would lead to George's death. So they did what they thought best. They cycled to the nearest phone box and dialed 999. Quick, phone the police. I am, I am. Police, what's your emergency? Help him, please, help him. Okay, you need to calm down. There's a man, he's being attacked by someone. You need to help him. Okay, can you tell me where they are? Yeah, at the top of Pitfoddle's station road. But you need to come quick, he's hurting him. He's hurting him really badly. Don't worry. Police officers and an ambulance are both on their way now. Stay where you are. Everything's going to be okay. Please, come quick. The man on the ground, he's shouting for help. In a statement to the police, the boys said that as they cycled along the road that night, they heard someone shouting for help. And that's when they saw George pinned to the ground by his assailant. And that's something, not surprisingly, even after 40 years, that George's nephew Alex still finds difficult to talk about. I, you know, yeah, and it does make me 
and my throat gets a little bit lumpy thinking about him dying and shouting for help and and nobody there to to really help him but you know no blame on the kids you know at that age my goodness what a what a dilemma they're there they're cycling up and uh they hear somebody and they see it and uh what can they do at that age I mean, and they, from what I gather, the man didn't, didn't even look up. So they, they took the, the course of action that they felt was the right course of action. And goodness me, I would have probably done the same. Off they went to alert uh, the police and uh, God bless them for, for doing that. As the boys hurried to alert the police, a passerby who has never been identified reached into George's car and used the taxi radio. Yes. Who is this? Um, your driver's been hurt. Something's happened to him. Where are you? He's on Pitfoddle Station Road. What's your name? Are you still there? Hello? Hello? Is the driver okay? Hello? Can you hear me? The taxi operator immediately called the police, as well as putting out an urgent call to all the taxi drivers working that night. All drivers, all drivers. One of our drivers, I think, is in trouble. We think he's on Pitfodal Station Road. Can you please go there now and search a local area? That's Pitfodal Station Road. Please hurry. I, th- I think it's George. I think it's Dodd Murdoch. Jim Singer, one of the taxi drivers working that night, remembers it well. He had just stopped for a tea break at the local taxi office when he heard the alert. I remember the night it happened, I think it was a Thursday night, I think it was, and we were sitting in Harding Street having a chat, uh, and then it came over uh, nine-ish that you know, one of the drivers had missing, you know, and they were looking for him, so uh, word had got wrong, uh, and uh, it was about 10 o'clock, I think, when we when finally got word, not only about 10-ish, that we got word of what had happened to him, you know, or, or vaguely what had happened, that, that he'd been found. So it was kind of devastating, I remember, you know, because he didn't expect that in Aberdeen. I mean, when you work the night shift in the 80s and anything as horrific as this, no, no, nothing like this. It shook us, I think, shook the whole trade. It was just devastating, absolutely devastating. When the call came over the taxi radios, some of George's colleagues who were in the area made their way to the scene, with no idea just how bad the attack carried out on George had been. Simultaneously, because of the two teenage boys calling the police, as well as alerting the ambulance service, Grampian police put out a call to all officers for urgent assistance. I had a colleague with me and uh, he was under training. And so we were out training with the dog. It was quite a, a wild kind of night. It was raining on and off and very murky. We were due off anyway, off duty. And I heard this call coming over the radio saying that a taxi driver was being attacked and assaulted in Portfolio Station Road. So I said to my colleague, that's just round the corner, it's just up the road. For nine years, Alan Henry served as a Scots Guardsman for the British Army. It was a job that took him all over the world, within a regiment of the military that forged a reputation as one of the toughest fighting units in the British Army. After leaving the military, Alan joined Grampian Police, where he worked within the dog handling unit. On the night of George's attack, Alan and his colleague 
were the first police officers to arrive at the scene. When Alan got there, he saw George's blue Ford Cortina taxi sitting at the top of the road, with the driver and rear doors both open. And, next to the taxi, on the pavement, George lay motionless. As Alan knelt beside George, he could see that he had suffered severe neck and head injuries. When I approached him and knelt down beside him, I said to my colleague, these people at the top of the road, maybe it was one of them that did it, you better go up there and detain them all. So he shot off up there to grab them, and I attended to Dodd and just sort of kneeled down beside him and tried to wake him up, but he wouldn't wake up, and there was quite a wee bit of blood running about. And of course, there was a cheese wire lying there. He was unconscious. I felt he was still there. And what I was really saying to him, do you know who did this? Can you give me a description of this guy? Can you open your eyes up? I felt total sympathy for the poor guy doing his job and for something like that to happen to him. You know? Oh, dear God. Can you tell me your name? Who did this to you? Can you open your eyes? Don't worry. The ambulance is almost here. You're going to be okay. I said, look, you're going to be all right. Don't worry. Ambulance is here now. You'll be taken to hospital. Everything will be okay. And whether or not he heard these words or not, I honestly don't know. But I thought it appropriate to at least talk to the guy. I was only there five minutes maximum beside George. I got the distinct impression that he was still alive. He'd obviously undergone a brutal attack. Now, I got the impression as well that he'd obviously put up a bit of a struggle because there was some blood on the wall adjacent to where he was lying. Ambulance guys came down and they had a quick look at him and said, look, we're going to take him away because we think he's still alive. And I had a lump of wax chalk in my pocket. So I marked a silhouette around George's body before they actually lifted him. And they took him into the ambulance. I remember him putting the oxygen mask on him. I would suggest that he was dead on arrival at the hospital. Maybe he died in the ambulance. I don't know. Sadly, the attempts of the paramedics to save George's life were in vain. At approximately 8.50pm on Thursday, 29th September 1983, George Brody Murdoch was pronounced dead. At the time, the cause of death was recorded as to be ascertained. Then, on the 10th of October, 11 days after his death, the cause of death was confirmed as strangulation. George had only been a taxi driver for 17 months and it was a job that caused Jesse, his wife, a great deal of worry. But I can't help thinking that her fears probably centred around him being robbed, perhaps assaulted. But did she ever really think that the most unimaginable thing would have happened to George that night? That he would be murdered. Is everything okay? Are you Mrs Murdoch? Yes. Mrs Jessie Murdoch? Is it George? Has, has he been in an accident? Is he okay? I'm PC Mitchell. This is my colleague PC Forbes. May we come in, please? Ye yes. Oh, no. 
it's impossible to imagine how Jesse processed the news that night. They had no kids. They had siblings, nephews and nieces, and a circle of close friends, but really, George was Jesse's life. They had been married for 38 years, and when the police told her that night that George had been taken away from her, it must have felt like her whole world had been totally crushed in a split second. I remember the night like it was yesterday. Absolutely horrific. David was just 13 when George was murdered. He lived next door to George and Jesse with his mum, dad and sister. But the families were much more than just neighbours. George and Jesse, for me growing up, were another set of grandparents. They didn't have family, couldn't have family, so they looked at my mum and dad as kind of like a, a son and daughter and um, me and my sister as, as, as grandchildren that they never had. Um, so yeah, it wasn't just like neighbourly, but yeah, just family to us, really were amazing people. And David will never forget the harrowing events that unfolded on the evening of Thursday 29th September 1983. I went to bed probably about nine o'clock, we had school the next day, fell asleep and then I heard I heard a noise, and I was like, what's a noise? And then I realised it was, it was actually howling. It was a howling noise. It was somebody cracking it, and I actually thought it was my mum. I thought maybe her and my dad had had an argument on the phone, or, and I thought, yeah, maybe they've, they've fallen out. And kind of, wasn't even dozing back off, but then next thing was my mum came into the bedroom and was like, I need you to sit and look after your sister. I need to go through um, and sit with Jessie. Something's happened. Dodd's dead. The next thing was downstairs and mum was through the house. I think at the time there was two or three policemen in our house. Um, and I'd said to one of the policemen, I, I don't know what's happened, I don't understand. Um, my mum says Dodd's been killed. And automatically I'd said he was a really good driver. I can't believe he's been in a, an accident, he was a really good driver. And I was just told it wasn't an accident. And that was it. And I was like 13 years old being told by a policeman that, you know, this, this wasn't an accident. And you, you, you don't know what to think. You're just heads all over the place. And I just like sat in the living room, kind of in disbelief and police coming back and forth between Jesse's house and our house and different policemen in and out. Um, yeah, it was a long night and all I could hear was Jesse screaming, wailing, coming through from the living room next door. And that was all you could hear. No, 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 no! No! No, 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 no please, no, no! No! Coming up in episode 2 of Who is the Cheeseware Killer? 
why did the person have a cheese wire with him? And the fact that the killer was still out there and the randomness frightened people. There's upwards of 10,000 statements noted, but unfortunately that, that was fruitless. They didn't come up with anything. It may just be that this person actually has quite a long record in terms of violence and through that violence or through his own victimisation he's developed, developed PTSD as a result there. It would be someone who should really be known to the police but certainly not for murder. So the offender chosen to try and murder someone with a cheese wire and the way that he would have played that out in his mind would have been a very clean um, murder. Now when that didn't happen that's led to a specific response from the offender if you have any information about what may have happened to George Murdoch on the night of 29th September 1983, please do get in touch. A £50,000 reward remains for any information that successfully leads to the identity of the killer. You can private message the George Murdoch Facebook page. Search for Appeal for Information Aberdeen Taxi Driver 1983 George Murdoch on Facebook. You can email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or you can call Police Scotland on 101, all of which you can do anonymously. Also, please rate, share and tell people about this podcast. The more people who hear this story, the better chance we have of finally bringing George Murdoch's killer to justice. You've been listening to Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Written, produced, edited and presented by me, Ryan Ogilvie. Mixed by Christopher MacDonald. Dramatic scenes were produced by Leanne Colston, Rory O'Shea and Steve Henderson. Actors included Angela Duguid, Ben Barclay, Daniel Warren, Guillaume Potter, Jenny Dunbar, Kenny Blythe, Kenny Luke, Martin Barclay-Bell, Oliver Johnston and Steve Henderson. Music from New Noise Audio and Soundstripe. Studio facilities were provided by Original 106. This is a Mind the Gap creative production.